Hello, hello, my dear audience. I'm Peter Resnick, and welcome to the Dr. Peter Resnick's toolbox. Oh, I just realized something. An hour ago, I was listening, I had a break, and I was listening to Dr. Peter Bregan's Hour uh, archives here on PRN. And that's how he actually greets his audience. He just says, hello, hello, my wonderful audience. Well, he's a good man to emulate. That's who I want to be when I grow up. And you are a wonderful audience, my dear audience. Thank you so much for your emails with kind words and comments. And, and it is in response to those who wrote to me that I have chosen the subject of today's show, depression. I want to remind those who would like to write to me and do not have my address yet. Uh, here is my email, drpeterresnik at gmail.com, D-R-P-E-T-E-R-R-E-Z-N as Nancy, I-K at gmail.com. And also, if you want to call in during this show with your comments and or questions or your personal story of dealing with depression, you can do this as well. The number to call today is 888-874-4888. Again, 888-874-4888. Before we start, I want to make sure that we continue our WIT program, uh, W-I-T, Will Integration Training, a series of 12 exercises designed to strengthen your willpower. During the last six shows, I already gave you the first six assignments. Today, I'm giving you the assignment number seven. Those who decided to follow the exercises, here is the exercise for the following week. Every day with a pen or pencil, write two sentences in the perfect script, as perfect as you can make it. Something like, I'm writing these two sentences because this is my assignment for this week, period, and I am committed to staying on track with my WIT practice. Or you can choose some other two sentences, but that would be good too. Then you take a picture of your writing and text it to someone who is your strict, demanding, and fair, uh, quote, sponsor for evaluation. Tell them that you want them to comment if this writing is really super good. So you wanted to make really, really good script. The point of this exercise, of course, is to take, for you to take time to give your whole undivided attention to one activity, and of course, to affirm your commitment to do the work of the wit. I have to say, once I decided to speak on the subject of depression, that was all that my mind would come to when I had a free moment during these few days. Having had a, a non-stop conversation with you, my dear listener, the one who is particularly the one who is suffering from this affliction. 
Let me start with some statistics on how depression uh, is viewed by contemporary conventional mental health. Uh, I'm talking about psychiatry and psychology. According to NIH, National Institute of Health, 18 million American adults suffer from, from depression every year. A major depressive episode among the United States adults aged from 18 or older in 2017 was experienced by 7.1% of population. If you think right now, from I know from the people at the PRN, more than a thousand people are listening to me right now. And let's say just it's just 1,000. So some 70 people out of all may be experiencing depression right now, this very moment, or maybe uh, the episode ended a couple of days ago, it will come, but somewhere during this year. And if you happen to be one of these people, my dear listener, more than likely you don't want to hear long talks about depression. You want something right now that will make it feel better to get out of this deep sadness, of hopelessness, of loneliness. Uh, it feels that nobody knows how bad it is. There is a world out there and you are here in this place alone. And it may be even hard to keep your eyes wide open. I promise by the end of this hour, you will have concrete tools. You will have a concrete assignment, which may be very helpful for getting out of this place, at least to start your own. But I want to start by reassuring you that you are not alone, that what you're experiencing is a natural human condition. It's not a pleasant one. In fact, it's a very difficult and disturbing one. And while you're going through it, particularly if you have been experiencing it for a while, it seems so all-encompassing and overwhelming. And nevertheless, it is something that once you accept as a natural human condition, natural human experience, which majority of people go through at one time or another in their lives, you may find it is easier to begin to deal with the problem. The suggested origins of this disorder vary from genetic predisposition to neurological abnormalities to inadequate diet and poor quality of sleep, you name it. The symptoms may include some of, of this uh, persistent sadness, feeling of worthlessness, excessive guilt, withdrawing from family and friends, disruption of sleep or eating, lack of energy and concentration, problems with self-image, and even sometimes thoughts of suicide. And you may have a single stretch of depression, or it may be like periodic, 
it can be recurring episodes. The domineering theory about depression in contemporary psychiatrists is that sufferers of depression have a chemical imbalance in the brain. This theory was supported by research that demonstrated that the brain chemistry of people who are depressed is different than the brain chemistry of those who are not depressed. Further research showed that this, quote, imbalance could be corrected by giving patients medication that would alter brain chemistry and make it, quote, more normal. And so came the age of medications such as Prozac, Paxil, Efexo, Lexapro, Selexo, Wilbutrin, Zoloft, and the like. There is no question that the brain chemistry of a person who is depressed is different from the brain chemistry of a person who is not. But that depressed brain chemistry has not always been there. Most people were not born with this chemical imbalance. People are not born with some Prozac deficiency syndrome. Depression is a disorder that is experienced by people at different stages in their lives. People may have lived for 20 or 30 or 40 years and were just fine. Then the brain chemistry just flipped on them. And because of that, the emotions went haywire and they started feeling sad, unhappy, apathetic, remorseful, guilty or hopeless. Does this outlook make any sense to you? I personally hold the belief that there is no such thing as a chemical imbalance. And of course, I'm not the only one who thinks this way. In fact, Dr. Peter Bregan, I mentioned, who has a show here on, on this very network, 30 years ago published a book, Toxic Psychiatry, speaking about it. The psychiatrist William Blesser shared these beliefs too, may he rest in peace. And Dr. Gerald Epstein and Dr. David Hawkins and many others. The brain chemistry is not primary, we believe, but secondary to our emotions. Our brain chemistry is always in proper balance, or maybe I should say more accurately, in perfect correspondence with our emotional state. Imagine for a moment, as you are listening to me now, you receive a text, you're informed uh, that, that something just happened. You were accepted, let's say, whatever dream job or whatever it was, uh, you were given an opportunity or you just won $10 million or think of whatever you covet the most. What happens? Your brain chemistry changes instantaneously. And it is in perfect congruence or balance. Uh, and it's perfectly appropriate for the state of elation that you experience. Now imagine you get the news about some great, God forbid, misfortune that happened with someone you love. Once again, your brain chemistry changes. But this time it corresponds with the feeling of emotional pain or loss or helplessness. The brain chemistry 
may also change slowly as a consequence of continuous dissatisfaction, a feeling of guilt, remorse, helplessness, hopelessness, and the like. In all cases that I just gave, the brain chemistry changes appropriate, not inappropriate. Most people, after having gone through what commonly would be called hard times, go back to normal functioning and their usual mental and emotional disposition. Some are unable to shake off those feelings and they, they're, they're diagnosed as depressed. Uh, having received the label of being chemically imbalanced, they begin to take chemicals that artificially change their mood. What comes to mind now, I remember a number of years ago, uh, a gentleman walked into my office, and I have to tell you, 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 you know, now I will make a face and, and you cannot see my face, but he walked in like this and was like mumbling, hi, Dr. Shakta suggested that I come to see you. That's how he sounded. And I started questioning him about his life, what happened. And basically this man in that time, uh, now I know him for, for several years, more than several, seven years or eight years. But uh, at that time he was uh, telling me the story that uh, he was already on medication for 10 years. But, uh, and that originally he was in love with a young woman uh, from a culture where they they don't appreciate when a person marries to a different uh, race. And so when he, he was in love, and the young woman was in love, but once she told her mother that she's in love with this man, um, she's just Caucasian uh, American, her mother said, absolutely not. And the girl, a young woman uh, complied, and in fact, uh, stopped seeing this uh, client of mine. And he was very sad. And listen, you and I understand, appropriately sad. He was, as he told me, first time in life, so in love, and was planning that they will get married, have children, you know. And suddenly, suddenly out of the blue, boom, he lost this woman. He was very, very sad, and he had his regular checkup. And his physician said, you look not so good, what happened? And he said, you know, I'm, it's been now several weeks, I'm so depressed. Uh, and he told the story. And the doctor said, well, well you, you are depressed, why don't you take, I don't remember now what medication. To make a long story short, when he came into my, not even my, Dr. Schachter's practice. I, I worked uh, at the Shakta Center for Complementary Medicine, you probably know. He was on several different medications. Because when he was given this antidepressant, he start, suddenly started feeling anxious. So he was giving also anti-anxiety depression. Then he started having other problems. Anyway, he was, I think, on five or six different medications. He was in a zombie-like state. For, Thankfully, now he's off medication and, and he's in, in a good place. You know, we get in touch once in a while. But what happens? This was a healthy person 
who was appropriately sad. He was also grieving about loss of love. And possibly he did not have uh, a great support system. Maybe he didn't share. I think he did not share with anyone, not with his brother, not with his parents, not with his friends. So let's call it, he was uh, an introvert. In fact, he is an introvert. So maybe he needed indeed to talk to some therapist or counselor and who would hopefully recommend that he uh, connects with his grief and, and maybe shares with his relatives or shares with the counselor. Instead, he was giving a numbing medication. So what happens uh, when people are taking medication? They indeed become chemically imbalanced. That is, their brain chemistry is no longer corresponding with the state of affairs in their lives. Nothing changed. They do not get over the sadness or not having achieved something they wanted to achieve or the pain of loss or the feeling of hopelessness about the situation that they're in. They did not learn new tools of dealing with their life circumstances. All that happened was that their feelings were numbed. The drug does not have the intelligence on its own. The drug doesn't go in and says, hmm, yeah, I'm going to numb those bad feelings so the man would feel good. No, the drug numbs the ability to feel if it at, work, at all works. It numbs the ability to feel. And to the degree that people on medication are no longer feeling pain, they're not feeling joy either. Stop medication and the feeling of pain comes back. Keep people on medication and you have taken away their awakeness to life. The, the answer is not in knocking people out of the depressive state as quickly as possible. It is in helping them to find new and effective ways of coping with life's challenges. We all need to learn to cope with life. Life is not simple. You know, the, the teachings of the Buddha begin with the words, life is difficult. It's not, it's not simple. And in guiding people to make peace with their losses, to find meaning in their lives, we can help them to find their peace. In assisting them in, in the development of tools and strategies that they can use in the pursuit of their goals. If the theory that the faulty brain chemistry was responsible for causing depression and not the other way around, if that theory is right, psychotherapy, psychotherapy would never work in treatment of depression. Yet numerous studies have demonstrated that cognitive behavioral psychotherapy is as effective in treating all forms of depression. I repeat, all forms of depression as medication. So let us now set aside the chemical imbalance theory and consider other possibilities of treating depression. First, what is depression? Let's start with the term itself. It's important. 
some of you know that I am a linguist. My first education is not psychology or social work, but I taught literature in high school. I'm a linguist, my first education that I got in the Soviet Union. So, and I love that subject. I never thought that, that linguistics and psychology will go together, but they, they do. The language evolves over hundreds, sometimes thousands of years. And at the base of most words are verbs carrying a particular pictorial meaning. The pictures, the images rooted in the words, in the root words, have deep connection with the original observations that led to the development of the original word. Does it make sense to you? So it's deeply connected with our psyche. Our ancestors understood this word the same way. So the word depression comes from Latin depressio, which means pressing down. So if people are suffering from depression, something is pressing them down. Whether it is guilt or remorse or longing for something that did not happen or grieving about something that did happen, there is always a burden that is weighing them down. In fact, I actually wrote an article, Lifting the Burden, Notes on Depression. The burden is the feeling of loss that they cannot get over. Feeling sad or being depressed about this loss. It is a common occurrence in everyday life. We we'll all go through our ups and downs, through our mini depressions and mini rebounds. Majority of people who go through days or even weeks of being depressed about their loss do get better. Their attention is taken by other things in their lives. Uh, daily responsibilities, new goals, new relationships, new opportunities. The feelings that are uh, inspiring them, something new comes into their life, something meaningful to them and require their attention. And, and that pulls them out of their sadness and grief. These setbacks and rebounds happen to many people, but not all people. Some do not have the rebounds that are that's strong enough to bring them back into the flow of everyday life. Why it happens to some and not others, uh, we don't know. It's not a good question to ask. I tell you why. Because an attempt to answer the question why may take us away from the attempting to help a person and throw us into the abyss of infinite guesses. We all have different genetic history, different physiology, different health history, different individual life experiences. The list of differences among people is endless. And all of them could play a role in why we respond differently to some events. If you believe in past lives, it can be your, your experiences from past lives. But no matter how much we try to understand why, 
it will be all intellectual guesses. So what, even let's say, even if, if it is coming from past life and you go to a hypnotherapist and I've done a lot of hypnosis, I've done a lot of past life regressions. In fact, one, one day I will talk about it when it was useful and beneficial. But, but let's say you try to find out why you have a tendency of being depressed and you go to previous life and you find that something bad happened. But how do you know that this is the, the, the original bad happening? Maybe before that was another time, and before that it was another time. And it's endless. And it may be not just that thing that contributed. No matter how much we try to understand the why, it will all be just guesses. In some cases, the event or circumstances the origin, that originally triggered depression may no longer exist or be, become irrelevant. But for people who are suffering from depression, the focus on negativity and sadness becomes a deeply ingrained habit. So we must not ask a question why that happens, but a question what? What can we do? to make a change. And don't think that, uh, I hope you don't think that I'm minimizing the, the experience by calling depression a deeply ingrained habit. Call it a way of being, call it feeling, thinking and behaving that is so entrenched that while being there a person may not have the strength or even idea of how to get out of it. I know to some degree how it feels. I've been in bad emotional situations in my life and I'm almost 67 years old. It's not possible to go uh, through life you know, just in the rows and clouds. But not only I have the tools that I learned and have been teaching to others, I can call my older sister who is a very attentive and loving and caring person. I hope she will listen to this show. I can call my older brother and have a man-to-man -man conversation knowing that he is there for me. And if I need, I can call him in the middle of the night. Most of my relatives are health professionals. I'm very fortunate. I have an extensive network of help available to me if I need it and know how to access it. And what about a person who does not have such a luxury, does not have a family or friends, or has them, but does not know how to ask for help? You remember a movie uh, those of you who are my age, or maybe just a little younger, uh, in 1985 or 1986, there was this movie, Crocodile Dundee, just an entertaining movie, Crocodile Dundee. In the movie, the character, I think played by Paul Hogan, comes to New York. It's a really fun movie, if you have a chance, watch it comes to New York from outback Australia with this beautiful woman that 
and there is a love story going on there. And the woman is uh, who is a New Yorker uh, is whispering to the guy in his ear, introducing him to all the guests of her father's party. And it's like a huge mansion and a big party, a lot of people nicely dressed. She points out at one woman and says, this woman really was messed up for a long time. But then she found a, a good shrink. She helped her and she's okay now. And Dandy, Dandy this guy uh, says, what is shrink? And she says, you know, it's a kind of a doctor. Uh, if you have a problem, you go and talk to him. And Dandy says, well, if I have a problem, I call Steve and Mike. We get together, have a few beers, talk it over, and I get over it. And in the movie, it sounded humorous, but indeed, it is profound. People need other people. Not necessarily to solve their problems. People need social connectedness. They need to know that someone cares. That's how we are made. Human beings are social animals. We know that it's true. Without connectedness, we don't survive. What comes to my mind now is um, during the World War II, a lot of there were many little newborns uh, who needed attention. You know, they were premature babies. Uh, or just young children, very, very new. We're talking about, uh, if not thousands, hundreds, hundreds of newborns. And there were bombings, and people uh, in charge were concerned that these maternity houses, whatever they were called, would be bombed. And all these children, and in fact, many young children also, um, were separated from their parents, plus the newborns, and were all shipped out of, of London. And they were in a safe place, and all, most of the newborns died because they did not have the touch. They were taken care of medically, they were fed, whatever food they were giving them, you know, maybe milk or whatever, uh, but the babies didn't survive. And most children who were separated from their families grew up and they were followed by psychologists. A lot of them had psychological problems. And those children who stayed with their parents in danger did not have psychological problems. So our feeling of connectedness is crucial. The touch, the interaction is crucial for our well-being, for the very survival. So the most important, I believe, if you can connect with people, otherwise you're stuck with bad company for that moment, and that is yourself. It's a lonely place. From, from the moment people who are seriously depressed, they wake up, the doom and gloom of the present, the bleak events of the past, 
or the green perspectives for the future become an unavoidable point, focus of their attention. Uh, let's see if anything can be done if, you, if you're disconnected, if you're alone with your pain. Uh, is staying with that pain or in that pain unavoidable? Is it, is it not possible ever to get out of this situation? That's the question you ask yourself. If you, particularly if you experienced that place of deep depression, and did you feel that nothing could take you out of it? Let's consider a hypothetical situation. A depressed man is sitting in his room, feeling sad and hopeless. Suddenly he smells, or she smells smoke. The moment he sees flames, what happens? Or maybe he opens the door and, and he sees flames. So there is a fire on the floor. What happens? What are the chances that after noticing the flames, this person would go back to his or her gloomy thoughts, saying, oh, I don't care, I'm too depressed. More than likely, they would take action of escaping the danger. And for as long as they would fight for their life, for as long as they would stay in the what is of the present moment, they would not be depressed. Of course, after the danger would be over, in the absence of another powerful stimulus, uh, they could go back to their depressive thoughts or attitudes, or not. Some other powerful jolt could shake up their way of perceiving reality, and they could develop new attitudes, new goals, and get absorbed by the excitement of new possibilities in their life. It would all depend on how powerful the jolt would be, whether or not they could afford to go back to the slumber of depression, and what kind of new possibilities would open for them. You know, Mahatma Gandhi said, every night I go to sleep, I die. And in the morning, I'm born again. Every morning we have 24 brand new hours to live. The way we go through these 24 hours largely depends, but not only, but largely depends on our thoughts. Our thoughts affect the way we feel. The way we feel determines our behavior. And the consequences of our actions have an impact on our thoughts. And here goes the cycle. People who are depressed may not choose to have sad thoughts from, from the get-go. These thoughts just come. People just wake up and there they are, those sad thoughts. Though, even though we don't have control over particular thoughts, 
appearing in our mind. We do have control over what we do with those thoughts once they come to our mind. This I know that you you know this. I don't know how psychologists, experimental psychologists, determined it, but the speed of a thought is one one hundred fiftieth of a second. So when the sad thought, depressing thought comes, don't blame yourself. Oh, look what I do. It comes. You have no control. But at some point you become aware, you catch yourself that that's where you are. Then it's your responsibility. Then it's up to you what you do with those thoughts. The way out of depression, the first step is becoming aware of, and then second step, interrupting the pattern of negative thinking. Uh, but the next, possibly releasing the guilt or regret about the losses of life, in life, creating a new vision and moving toward fulfilling, fulfilling possibilities for that new vision. I, uh, here, let me find it. I have uh, developed nine steps process, nine step process, yes for overcoming depression. And it's kind of a little loose. It, I will be able to give you uh, just general uh, direction, uh, general kind of ideas of how to do it. And each of the steps need, need, requires probably a lot of time to be developed or to be discussed. So you take an idea if you want to write it down or maybe uh, you can later listen to, uh, to this show on archives, or you can send me an email, I can send you, just typed up these nine steps, because you really need to meditate on each of the steps. So, let me tell you about the steps. Number one, if it is possible, connect with people you trust, with whom you can share your pain, if you're able and willing to do it. Inform them that you don't need them to solve your problems. You just need their attention. Just need to have an ear. This is it. It's good to connect with another human being, possibly more than one. Number two. Connect with your feelings. This is something that you do in privacy with yourself. Connect with your feelings without judgment. That's very important. Without judgment, you need to ask yourself, what do I feel? Or how do I feel? First, it's intellect, but you need to identify. Do I feel lonely, scared, and hopeless, desperate? emotionally tired and wanting life to be over, disconnected from people and or life itself. Identify what it is without making a judgment or interpretation. Once you identify it, 
connect with your feelings. What do I mean? Allow yourself to feel. Don't think, oh, that's what I feel, and don't, uh, don't try to get away from these feelings. Just feel. I tell you why. Uh, it's actually uh, uh, one of the people I learned this tool from was Dr. David Hawkins in the book, uh, Letting Go. In fact, maybe one day I will talk more about this book. Uh, and he the one, is the one who describes any feeling like a container. Like, just think about a battery. It is charged, but eventually it loses its energy. It gets discharged. And Dr. Hawkins speaks about any negative feeling being just like that depository of energy. And if you sit without judgment inside of that feeling, the feeling will slowly subside in intensity till it may completely disappear. Uh, I personally tried this with different feelings, like anger. Uh, rather than thinking, oh, oh, I shouldn't be angry, or, or why I'm angry, just, just feeling it. Now, the most recent thing I have to tell you, uh, it was actually anxiety. Uh, a couple of months ago, my daughter went to Panama with a 19-year-old girl. Uh, not even 19 yet, uh, to Panama to live in some uh, work in some little hostel where people come, um, clients come, but also the, the owners offered young people to work there like staff and not to get paid, but they have an opportunity to live in this hotel. It's in the jungle. <laughs> uh, so she had to fly to Panama City and from there fly to another town, small town called David, and from there take a bus and from there go up the mountain somewhere in the jungle. And, you know, she went and said, I will call you from, from the place. I did not hear from her for a couple of days and I felt anxiety. And so what could I do? There is not much I can do. I sent a couple of texts. She said, I will call you from there, don't bother me. She's trying out her independence and I cannot really cut the wings, uh, tell her don't go, because particularly she did research and made her mother and I talk to the owners of the hotel or hostel, whatever it's called, but I'm still anxious. And I said, well, okay, having bad thoughts and horrific images that something bad happened, does it help me? Does it help my child? No. So I decided to sit with my anxiety, feel it. And I have to tell you, it was magical. I felt the anxiety, felt the anxiety, felt physical sensations in my body till eventually I stopped feeling anxiety. And I gave this tool to other people with other feelings, so like some 
uh, with a feeling of anger and some feeling of depression, and all um, reported the same results. As long as they could, rather than thinking about the, their feeling, <clears throat> actually experience it. Excuse me, let me have a sip of my ginger tea. Oh, it feels good. <clears throat> so, so the key is we have nine steps. So let's move on. So you stay with the feeling. Now the step three, after you have done this staying with the feeling, we're talking about depression, whether you need to do it for a short period of minutes or hours, or sometimes you need to do to do it for several days, as long as it takes to truly connect with how you feel. You now can look at the content of those thoughts and ask yourself, did I feel this way when I thought about something that actually happened or I felt this way because of simply having negative thoughts or fears. Question, what issues could be addressed and resolved through deliberate action and what issues simply were product of cognitive errors? Now, how do you know what a cognitive error is? That's when you may need a help of a friend or maybe even professional to run these thoughts by them. I'm talking not the thoughts that prompt, uh, that prompt positive action, but thoughts which are basically self-blame or regret, so depressive thoughts. They possibly are cognitive errors. Where something is not working, something should have. People, you need to be challenged. How true is it? Uh, in one of the uh, shows, I spoke about rational emotive therapy. You will have to look up in the description of my talks. I think maybe three or four weeks, I introduced what is called ABC technique, developed by Albert Ellis. Uh, psychologist Albert Ellis, uh, and it's part of a rational motive therapy. And that's where you can dismantle those cognitive errors and, and debate them. A, B, C is activating, A is activating event, C, consequence, and B is a belief. Usually thoughts, negative thoughts are based on, on some kind of beliefs that are dysfunctional. So explore this Please, number three has to be explored. As I said, all of them need to, some work to be done, require some work to be done. I'm just giving an outline. Number four, do the work of clarifying, uh, clarifying or finding meaning for living your life. You have to have clarity of what you're living for. And if you don't, Remember, if you, you just don't know what you want to do with your life, searching for meaning can be meaning on its own. So don't get desperate if you don't have clarity. 
looking for clarity. That's all already. There is so much information available. You have internet, you can search, you can Google anything. Uh, so unless, unless you're married, um, I'm just trying to joke because I saw uh, a t-shirt. I don't need Google. My wife knows everything. So if you know that kind of a wife, so then you are okay. Then you're not depressed. Number five, identify and learn the tools you need in the pursuit of that which makes your life meaningful. So not only you want uh, to know what is the meaning and to know where you want to go, but you also need the tools to get where you want to go. Number six, make an absolute commitment, and I suggest a written statement to do all that is necessary to fulfill your intention. Whether it's to feel good, to feel better, to find meaning, whatever what it is, you have to have an idea of how you're going to live your life once you're no longer depressed. Okay, so you have to write it down. Write down the price you pay now and will pay in the future, one year from now, five years from now, 10 years from now, if you are not totally committed to succeed, to get yourself out of this state, to do all the assignments that I'm giving you and all these nine steps. Write down then on a separate paper the rewards of succeeding. If you get yourself, if you make a total commitment to do all that you can to get out of this place, what will be the reward a year from now, five years from now, ten years from now? Number seven, seventh step, develop or strengthen your voluntary will so you could follow through with your commitment. Start practicing the WIT, W-I-T, Will Integration Training Techniques, which I have been sharing with my audience every week in the beginning uh, of every show. I started, I think, on June 8th, I believe, this year. And every week I give assignments. You need the will to be to challenge yourself to to accept to accept where you are uh, and to go beyond your comfort zone. You know, sometimes being depressed is actually comfortable. Sounds strange, but it depression allows apathy. And that is no movement, no, no effort. You just stay in that sadness. And there is, it's, it, you can be quiet, quietly, desperately staying in the same place. It becomes so comfortable that you don't see any other way. You have to train yourself to go beyond your comfort zone. Push yourself. Number eight. Keep weeding out negative and depressive, depressing thoughts from your mind. How do you do it? Uh, 
simply oops. You, you know, if you were depressed, you probably had hundreds, thousands of times the same thoughts. They repented it. Again, experimental psychologists say we have 6,000 thoughts every day, and 90% of them are the same with yesterday. Think about productivity. Ay, 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 ay. So, you thought so many times about the same, same thing, the same negative thoughts. So, there is nothing good that will come out of it. So, you, if you notice a negative thought, remember I told you, you have no control over having a negative thought. It comes with this tremendous speed. But you do have control over what you do once that negative thought comes. So immediately, the moment you catch yourself, you go, oops, and go right back to whatever you're doing before, uh, something productive. By, all the, by the way, if you're feeling sad and you find yourself in a sad posture, which means if you notice a person who is sad or depressed, they don't stand straight, with their shoulders back, looking up. Usually it's slouching, it's, it's a sad posture. If you, if you find yourself being in this posture, stand up, get out of this place. And uh, finally, nine, find a highly qualified yoga teacher. I hope you can afford it. Uh, or do something for them, barter. But you want a good yoga teacher, not the one, uh, uh, I don't want to say that people who do groups are bad yoga teachers, but I'm talking about a, a yoga teacher who can focus on you only, who can teach you individually techniques for mastering negative thoughts, just as much as the mental, there are mental techniques for uh, getting rid of negativity, that's like I say, oops, or you can read my article, remember, uh, you can go on my website, drpeterresnik.com, and on the articles, you find the article called Beating the Unbeatable, and within that article, there is a technique, and it's, I believe, not a believer, it's probably the best thing I ever wrote. I wrote a couple of books, many articles, but it's the best article I ever wrote about dealing with negativity. So there is a technique. It's an article, but there is a technique within that article that teaches you exactly what to do to snap out, to step out of that negativity. Uh, and these are, and now there are other things you need to do. Uh, you need to work on, on letting go of hurts, of holding grudge against people. Remember, when you forgive people, it's not for those people you're doing it, but for yourself to become free. Because to the degree that you hold grudge against people, you are their prisoner. You allow them to live rent-free in your head and also to let go of guilt. That's a whole other subject. Because there are true guilts and there are false guilts. I think, yes, I spoke uh, about guilt. You need to find on archives. And one of, because it's part of the, uh, my Six Pillars of Well-Being program. 
and I know I spoke about it. It was the very first subject I spoke, I was covering when I spoke about six pillars of well-being. You can go on my website. Uh, no, no, just not on my website. You can go on uh, my archives and find when I spoke about it and deal also with guilt. This is in overall how you approach dealing with depression. Our time together is coming to an end. Um, so I have to wrap up and I want to thank you again uh, with me, being with me today. I welcome, as I said, your feedback, your suggestions, your questions. Uh, and I hope next week, next week, I think I will have again the, as a guest, um, the already the third time my nephew Vladimir angered. And the reason I'm inviting him for the third time is because I see from the feedback and from the amount of times uh, my interview with him was downloaded. Uh, I, I interviewed 12 people so far, and out of them, out of 12, Vladimir Engert and uh, Wim Hof, two people that, that I interviewed, got the most downloads. I assume that there is great interest. And he has a lot to share. He's a psychic healer, the medium, and um, I will have him next week uh, for an interview. I want to thank you again for being with me. hope you will join me next week, next Tuesday at 2 o'clock. Peace to all who want to live in peace.